Who are the elite athletes? They are the men and women who have dedicated themselves to a level of achievement in a sport that most can only dream about. Whether they reach that pinnacle of success in high school, college, or in the pro game, the vast majority of these great athletes come to realize that their time at the top is only a few years. What does life have in store for them for the next 50, 60, or more years? What challenges and barriers do they face along the way? After the Glory is the show that features conversations with elite athletes as they talk about what led them to greatness and how their special skill set has prepared them for life beyond the playing field. Gary Stern and Lucy Sang are passionate admirers of elite athletes and are proud to bring you their stories. And now, the host of After the Glory, Lucy Sang and Gary Stern. Welcome to After the Glory. This is Gary Stern with my partner Lucy Sang, and this is our final episode of our season four, and we have something special, I think, for all of our listeners today. Lucy and I are going to talk about some of the themes of our show, look back on some of the guests we've had, and and as we do, we're going to introduce you to two uh, baseball people who had very different journeys. Both are friends through my adult fantasy camp that I just went to in November 2021, uh, Dale Torborg and Mickey Hatcher, two baseball people but two very different journeys. And I think they explain as much as anything the themes of our show. Um, Lucy, it's been an incredible ride, starting with Carl and Betty Erskine, moving on to Roman Pfeiffer, a, a footballer, uh, Ann Myers-Drysdale from basketball and many others. And one of the things that I think our listeners have picked up on is that you and I from different generations uh, have seen the, the athlete in a very different way when it comes to the uh, transition to life after, as you put it, the glory days of sport. Um, from your perspective, working with as a, as a accountability partner for younger athletes, um, how do you see the, the journey that they take and the plans and challenges they have leaving their sport uh, for the last time? Well, Gary, you asked a very interesting question because as I uh, listened to the two interviews that you did at Vero Beach, I'm just frequently thinking about transferable skills and access to anything, right? I, I mean, it's just crazy to me to think that 20, 30 years ago, someone tears their ACL and it takes them a month to get into surgery. I mean, this is a pro athlete, right? A month to get access to healthcare. And then, you know, someone tears their ACL today and they're in the surgery room within hours and they're back in rehab within weeks. It's a different trajectory of what your athletic career could look like. And I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing because, you know, people get pressured into doing things because it's accessible to them like social media like expediting recovery and things like that but sometimes we all just need to take a step back and really reevaluate because really as we hear some of our conversations with our guests many of them talk about 
it was during their downtime in which they actually were able to think about life after the glory days of sports. One of the things that's so obvious from the various guests we've had is that the older athlete, I mean, we start with our season one, episode one guest, Carl Erskine, who comes of age in the 1940s, right after World War II, um, and the opportunity is presented to come right out of the Navy and go into professional baseball. Um, But what happens is that the very same mindset, the very same mental approach, the toughness, the focus has never changed. The opportunities may have changed. The access to information has changed. But the, the mental toughness to become an elite athlete has not changed. Is that kind of how you see it? regardless of generation? Absolutely. I think the mental toughness is extremely crucial to have a successful athletic career. And I do think it's changed a bit in the way in how your mental toughness needs to be executed because of the additional um, access to social media. I think, you know, we, we really need to address how social media has impacted many of our athletes' lives to now be highlighted, not just on the field or court, but oftentimes highlighted for usually the not so good things that they're a part of or that happened to them or that they are you know, responsible for off the field and court outside of being an athlete. And that social media has totally um, exploded kind of an athlete's identity as an athlete, because now I think, you know, referring to what Dale had said in his interview, they're not just athletes anymore. They're entertainers. That's right. But one of the things that I think we're going to hear from both Dale and and Mickey Hatcher is the notion of support, the Mm -hmm. notion that you've got to have people who are, who have your back. One of the things that uh, I think our listeners will pick up on is that uh, our two uh, guests in their short interviews uh, not only did they have people who had their backs but they got it in later life they they learned that that is a tremendous tool for themselves to give that support to others even if it's to tell somebody as a coach hey maybe you ought to look at something else in in your in in life to move on with that this this doesn't look realistic to you. I think the thing that I want our listeners to understand is that Mickey Hatcher played baseball and never left the sport. He achieved the dream and he stayed with it. One of the things, Lucy, we've seen with many of our guests from the world of baseball, especially Steve Garvey, James Loney, um, uh, 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 Reggie Smith, Steve Yeager, uh, Carl Erskine, is that baseball among the various team sports seems to be a sport where there's more opportunity to stay with the the sport in some capacity. Our most recent guest, Tim Leary, is now a private coach for uh, travel ball kids learning to uh, pitch and wanting to learn from one of the best pitchers that Major League Ball had. Does that seem to you to stand out, that there's a lot of baseball people who, after their playing career ends, they, they find a way to stay with the sport, unlike some other sports. Yeah, you know, I think 
as you speak about it, it makes a lot of sense. But to me, I think many athletes who go pro decide to transition into a life in which they are no longer an active ball player into some aspect of their sport because you don't want to first start over, right? Whereas the rest of the world has, you know, had years, if not decades before many of these athletes, but you're, you're, it sounds like you're right. It, It seems like many of the baseball players are able to find some type of career within baseball shortly after they end their playing days. And and then of course there are the sports where the pro game doesn't really exist. We've had so many incredible women athletes and they have a very different mindset as to how they approach reaching the top of their sport because they know at a young age that it's not a forever thing. Yeah, I agree. I mean, with Darina and Erica talking about, I mean, both of them in the medical field now talking about being at the top of their game at UCLA and potentially having the opportunity to go pro, but pro for women's basketball, uh, you know, beyond what WNBA has become nowadays is typically an overseas career. And that's a very different experience and commitment than many of the sports that we do have available here in the United States at the pro level, which is typically male dominated. Let's uh, take a short break, and when we come back, uh, we'll hear from Mickey Hatcher, who will give us the perspective of somebody who grew up in a family. That family was the Dodgers. He played elsewhere, uh, but Mickey had a, uh, a, a great early career. He was a football and baseball player, ended up in baseball, stayed in baseball as a coach afterwards. We'll hear from Mickey Hatcher when we come back on After the Glory. Role models, they can make all the difference. In our world today, they have never been more important. One of the nation's most successful mentoring organizations is Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of Los Angeles. Their mission is to assist youth in achieving their full potential through innovative and impactful programs. And no nonprofit agency does it better. Jewish Big Brothers Big Sisters of LA serves Jewish children, boys and girls in our local community with a mentoring program that's been going strong since 1915. That's only the beginning. This nationally known agency owns and operates Camp Bob Waldorf. Its summer camping and weekend retreat programs enrich the lives of youth throughout greater Los Angeles. Then there's a college support program And last but not least, work that helps kids all over the world through the Teen Talk app. Want to learn more? Go to jbbbsla.org. Donate. Get involved. There's no better way to make a difference. Well, as a player, when I left the game, I had a great owner with the Dodgers, Peter O'Malley. He got me back in the game as a coach. So I had an opportunity to coach for another 20-something years, and... And it was something that I cherished. I, I don't think a lot of players understand that, that when they leave the game that there's still more game left for you. But the education that you get as a major league player to be able to pass it down to the minor league guys or players that are trying to make it to the big leagues is so important. You know, what we had to do, how hard we had to work, the things that we had to do. And that's what Peter O'Malley wanted me to do once I got out of the game. He thought I would be good at that. And I tell you what, I enjoyed every bit of it. I mean, I had a lot of great players for the minor leagues that I had an opportunity to coach. I had players that had an opportunity to play in the minor leagues that I said, you know what, 
this is you you're a great you have a great opportunity for a business outside of baseball i go this is an opportunity to be successful outside of baseball you you tried your journey and there was a lot of there was a lot of stressful times where these guys were wanting to know the decisions of guys that had educations and stuff to move on and a lot of those guys have always reached back to me and said thank you mickey uh, he goes these were that was a big decision in my life and it worked out it saved my family i got a great wife and kids so you know we have to make decisions some are right or some are wrong but it's like you become family with everybody that that you coach or that you have a, a ability to be around and especially the whole minor league of baseball and uh and the education is very important because that's what we're all about we had to go through it we had hard decisions you know and 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 it's tough and sometimes uh you know you you find a good kid that has the ability of being smart and has a great job opportunity to get an education to get a good job sometimes you have to tell them take the job you know did, did this you, is a, did you know you'd be a good teacher i never did i never did but i you know i was surrounded by guys like mike Sosha, ron renicky people that care about other people you know it's not like uh you know you when you teach you're you you become as tommy lasorda says they become family that's how tommy lasorda was peter o'malley his his father dodgers organization was about family and uh respect and a lot of these kids got to understand that and what was ending your playing career something you did on your terms were you comfortable no, that your career was over my my career ended in 90 i thought i had another year and uh it just didn't happen but that's baseball yeah and uh that's when peter o'malley got me into into coaching and uh, the doors just kept opening uh, you know lucy uh mickey hatcher obviously has a passion for the game and I will tell you, after a couple of fantasy camps with Mickey, uh, his his genuine love for the game and for the people who played it is so palpable um, and one of my all-time favorite people. Uh, he was an incredible athlete. You know, he, he played at the University of Oklahoma. He played both football and baseball. He played as a wide receiver in the 1976 Fiesta Bowl. This was no mm -hmm. minor football player. But he has ultimately signed with the Dodgers, uh, traded and spent a few years with the Minnesota Twins, came back to the Dodgers, and of course he was part of that amazing 1988 World Series team where he hit a home run in game one. Now, by the way, interesting note, Mickey Hatcher had only hit one home run the entire 1988 season, but he hits <laughs> two. He hits two in the World Series, one in the first inning of that game one. There was another home run that came later in that game by a guy named Kirk Gibson that got more attention, but Mickey's was critical to get the Dodgers started toward the world championship in 1988. Um, Mickey will forever be known for his fun-loving approach to playing baseball. Um, Happy-go-lucky guy, but between the lines, deadly serious. Had great success as a coach with uh, uh, Mike Sosha in those great Los Angeles Angels teams um, in the uh, early 2000s. Uh, it, it's just uh, great. And one of the things I think you noticed about Mickey is when you talk about a baseball lifer, uh, that's him. Why, why it was in his blood from early in his life, and he found a way to take that personality 
and make it work for him in the game of baseball. Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of one of our guests that we spoke with, Austin Quick, very recently, I think even in this season. And he was talking about how even in his days when he was injured, he was still the best man on the sidelines, right? Because that love for the game is not something we can train for. It's not something we can practice for. It's not something that we can even really teach. And that's something that I think is absolutely necessary for any athlete to excel and become the most elite in their game. You have to love the game above all else to really put in the time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears to become an elite athlete by talent, right? And yet some don't achieve the dream that they set out to achieve as a kid. And yet they, the, the ones who succeed understand the need to keep moving. And that becomes one of the themes of uh, a, a gentleman who I've become very good friends with, uh, the son of the great former Dodger catcher, Jeff Torborg, who went on to an excellent career as a manager in the game of baseball. And that's his son, Dale. Uh, Dale is an amazingly imposing person at six foot six and uh, a few pounds over 200. Um, and uh, uh, he was a, an accomplished college and minor league baseball player. And he'll tell us in, uh, when we hear from him in a few minutes that his dream was to take over for Don Mattingly and play first base for the New York Yankees. And yes, he eventually realized that that was not realistic to think about as a kid. And yet, look how close he came. Dale Torborg uh, had a career cut short by injury, uh, hit by a pitch in the face, and it affected his depth perception. So, you know, he had the mental toughness to shift the dream because he had a sense that a broader part of his identity was as an entertainer. And we know that uh, so many of the athletes who played before hundreds of thousands of people over their career, one of the things that they miss is that adrenaline rush of uh, of the crowd. We remember Rick Berry talked about that uh, mm-hmm. in, in very candid ways. So Lucy, with the dream uh, ended by injury, which we see so often with athletes, and the the sense that uh, another aspect to their personality is wanting to perform for people. Um, how do you see that as a an issue for athletes that you deal with? Well, it's definitely obvious when we hear from Dale's comment about he actually really enjoyed his minor league experience. And it's really society that puts this pressure on people as though minor league baseball players or minor league any players are just no good. Like they're not major league players. But none of us actually acknowledge that, you know, it does take a lot to get to the minor leagues as well. And it's society that puts this pressure on our athletes to to constantly please what the, what the society thinks is success when really in you know reality none of us know because we're not in those shoes and we're not on that field so you know i think the pressure to please society is so unnecessary but i also think it kind of defines whether an athlete is made for the game or not because if an athlete lets that type of pressure get to them 
and impact their game, then, you know, they've got some growing to do as well. And there's no greater example of somebody who expanded their dream the way Dale Torborg did. When we come back, we'll hear from Dale Torborg, minor league baseball player, strength and conditioning coach, but internationally known as the Demon when we come back on After the Glory. Hey, this is Lucy Sang from Resiliency Coaching. I am a certified mental performance coach focused on working with athletes transitioning into life after the glory days of sports. I help like-minded people become high performers and thrive in all areas of life. My goal is to serve as your accountability partner and offer different perspectives as you make tough decisions. Learn more about me on Instagram at resiliency underscore coaching, R-E-S-I-L-I-E-N-T-S-E-E underscore coaching. And thanks for tuning in to After the Glory. The entire time, you know, I'm going through and I'm, you know, young and, you know, just my childhood and my dad is major league coach, manager, that type of thing. So... It was kind of something that I always thought, I'm, I'm just going to be a major league baseball player, you know, until you hit a certain age and then you re- realize, you know, there's a lot of hard work that it just doesn't happen, you know, and, and as you, as kids, most of us are pretty good as we're playing and we think we're pretty good. High school, I remember junior in high school, I only struck out one time the entire time and, you know, uh, my entire year one time and then uh, I hit, you know, I don't know, way over 400 and all state and all this and all that and playing in all the all-star games and thought okay I'm you know I'm on the path you know and then um, I always just thought here growing up in Yankee Stadium basically my dad being a coach I'm around Don Mattingly you know and here's my idol Don Mattingly and I'm thinking well at some point it's just the way it's going to be is when Don retires I'm the next first baseman of the Yankees you know obviously the you know you just kind of the way I grew up, it was kind of seemed natural at the time, but you realize as you go on that that's not reality. So, you know, I end up playing in high school, then get a full scholarship to Northwestern, uh, play at Northwestern and have some ups and downs there and uh, do extremely well my senior year. And, you know, here we go. And it's like, okay, the journey's about to begin, you know, this pro baseball ride and, and, um, I, you know, I go to my first stop is Kingsport, Tennessee. And, you know, I, I land in the Tri-Cities Airport, have a, uh, somebody from the Booster Club picks me up and drives me, and I show up to this field. I'm like, wow, reality check. This is pro baseball. The field in Kingsport at the time was a high school football field that was converted into a baseball field. And the, the lips on the infield were enormous. There was a road, a short porch in right field, and there was a road right behind it. In center field, there is a giant flagpole, not behind the fence, in center field, that the center fielder has to run around a giant flagpole with a giant cement base to it. Left field, there's a snow fence. <laughs> and I'm thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. I just went from the Big Ten I've been around all these major league stadiums, and this is what we're playing in. I said, okay, I'm I'm in for I'm in for a big journey here, you know, in pro baseball. But you know, I actually was one of those that loved 
playing in the minor leagues. I didn't mind the bus trips. They weren't the greatest by any stretch. You know, they were tough. But I had my 1995, I, I, was, uh, well, I was traded from the Mets to the Yankees uh, in the middle of a, a series where I was with the, the uh, St. Lucie Mets get traded to the Yankees. So, you know, here I'm doing what we kind of thought. Okay, the Yankees now. You know, what I thought of Don Mattingly and taking over. And again, I wasn't, I wasn't considered a prospect because, you know, here I was hit in the face with a pitch in 1994 in, in Elizabethton, Tennessee, playing for those Kingsport Mets. Didn't know that the break that it hit my face, broke my cheekbone and messed up my depth perception. I didn't realize the depth perception was so off until I got traded to the Yankees. And then the next spring they tested my eyesight and said, you know, you're, uh, you, you, you missed the last three on the depth perception chart. And I said, well, uh, let me look at it again. And I couldn't see him. And, I, and so my left eye, then I covered it, and I did the right eye, and I saw all three, and I went, uh-oh, like this is not good. And I, they sent me in. They put this yellow kind of fluorescent dye in my eye, and they did all the tests. And I, and I said, how bad is it? And they said, for a baseball hitter, it's about as bad as it's going to get because you're judging the depth perception and speed and everything with your dominant eye, which is your left eye if you're a right-handed hitter. So I'm thinking, oh my gosh, okay, I'm not considered a prospect. I never used to have trouble hitting change-ups. Now I'm having trouble with change-ups along with breaking balls. I'm like, this is not going well. This is not what I thought of when I was 10 years old thinking that I'm going to be the next first baseman of the Yankees and going, you know, I'm starting to see this isn't, this really isn't working out for me. I tried to open my stance in order to use both eyes and have now tried to change it to have my right eye be the dominant because of opening up, but that really made me susceptible to anything on the outer half. So I really started to crowd the plate, and it just you know, was not going well. So in my head, I'm thinking, I, I know this is probably not the best thing, and I was going through some injuries. I had... Uh, one summer, I think it was the summer of 93, it was the summer before my senior year uh, at Northwestern, I had a throw into the runner, and I tried to jump tag him, and his, he, ducked it, he ducked his head, his helmet hit the back of my wrist and spiral fractured my left arm. Oh so I'm out for a long time, have, a, have a, a cast from my hand all the way up to my shoulder. And so I missed the fall of my senior year I missed the fall practices because I had a broken arm but so I had some injuries so I knew how to deal with injuries and I was okay I luckily I have a very high pain tolerance but at this point I'm knowing now with the Yankees this is not probably going to be the career path and it is a moment of okay now if this isn't what I'm doing what am I going to do with my life so literally at this point I'm trying to see where my next career is going to take me but I'm still playing and I'm trying hopefully I can work through this maybe I'll get the the depth perception back I don't know but that's where I have you know an, an interesting time in my life where you can literally be going straight ahead straight ahead straight ahead and then all of a sudden you completely you don't you know take a kind of a slight turn left it is a quick turn straight turn left and that was the 1995 Rose Bowl and because my college roommate Jeff Shine was playing in the Rose Bowl I was going out to to see him play and that's where I meet Hulk Hogan 
and Randy Macho Man Savage. And I meet Hogan on the plane going out to L.A., and then he was picking Randy Savage up at the baggage claim at LAX. And so we end up all start. We're talking about wrestling and baseball and all this. That Randy was a former minor league catcher. So we start talking about all this. And having no idea about pro wrestling, was a fan of it as a kid. But, you know, that's, that's completely a foreign world if you don't know anybody. And, like, how would you get into wrestling and meeting these guys? And then I get, you know, it, it really sparked me going wow, I, I think I could do this. I think I could. I don't know what made me think I could. Did you start yeah. with the notion that I am a tall, big guy? I mean, does it start with the notion that compared to other ball players, certainly, you were in the upper percentiles? Yeah, I, I knew that at 6'6", at six, six that I was, you know, larger than the average person. And that meeting Hulk Hogan, I remember, because Hogan was kind of larger than life. He was a larger than life figure. But... When you see him in person, for me, at this stage in my life, thinking, you know, thinking he was 6'10 or whatever it was, and seeing, wow, he's like my size. I'm thinking, wow, he's, you know, that, that kind of was like, I can, and then meeting Randy wasn't, he was completely built. I mean, he was, he was huge in terms of that, but in height wise, I mean, he wasn't, you know, maybe 6'1. And so I'm thinking, I, I, maybe I could do this, you know, and, and it used to be a kind of a standing joke among my minor league teammates. Like you're a little off you know, you like kiss and this and that you should be a pro wrestler. You got the size and the mentality. So that was a joke in some ways with the, my teammates. And it really started in my mind not to be, uh, you know, it started to become serious. They can, I, I can do this. And then I, so then I got a trainer and in Jim the Anvil Neidhart and the Warlord. And I started, I quit playing. Uh, I, I was going through everything and I, I tried to continue playing, but my heart was after meeting Hulk and Randy, my heart wasn't there in, in, in the game anymore thinking, cause I knew, I knew I wasn't going to make it so I could keep trying to make it. Or go to this where I now I have this kind of burning desire to to make it in something else. The dream shifted. It did. It did. The dream shifted for me and going, wait a minute, wait a minute. I have this athletic side of me, but I also have, I was a film major at Northwestern and I had this entertainment side of, of me as well. And being a KISS fan, it you know, it just... I had these different parts of me. We all have different parts. Some things we don't show people, some that we do, and there's many different parts to people in general. And I know that when the whole KISS initiative started and I ended up getting the role of the KISS demon, for me, that was the ultimate culmination and the collision of my two worlds, of the sports and entertainment, Colliding into my ultimate dream, little did I know that that was going to be it. I'm representing the greatest band of all time, my favorite band since I was five, when my brother brought home the Destroyer record, and to be able to have the athleticism, the athlete part of me, now I crush them together, and now the Kiss Demon is the ultimate manifestation of my dreams. Your story is classic in this respect. Even though you're the son of a former major league ball player, manager, and coach, the dream is something any kid would have. 
it didn't happen for you the way you envisioned. What would you tell young people, young athletes who have a dream? Uh, what, what, what did you learn that you can impart to young athletes uh, about the notion of a dream and having the flexibility to adjust? I, I think the biggest thing in general with any kid that has a dream is to go after the dream. And not everybody fulfills their dream in the way that they think. Obviously, I just told you the story. That wasn't the dream that I thought. But there was a higher power that, that pushed me in some way, into another dream, saying that, you know, the baseball thing isn't going to happen for you. But you can't get down too down because you think about all these minor league players that I've coached over the years. And if you think about it, if the, you know, the average, I guess, to, to make it to the big leagues is one out of a thousand players, yeah. those aren't very good odds. You know, when you have baseball as to, to be in the Hall of Fame, you're, the Hall of Famers fail at least seven out of ten times. That's kind of uh, crazy if you really think about yeah. how mentally tough that is to fail seven out of ten times. There's not too many areas in any part of anybody's life that you fail seven out of ten times and you keep doing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So understanding that your dream might not be what you want it to be, and it's disappointing, obviously. But you, Jeff Cox was a, a coach that we had, and he used to have a saying, got to keep moving, got to keep moving. That's what he would say. And there's a lot when you think about that one quote, got to keep moving, because you can't stop. Because even if your dream stops for you in that, find something that you like to do and keep moving. Keep moving in it, and you're, you're going to find more and more things that make you happy. But if you stop and pout, you're never going to be happy. This is Daryl Wayne, here to talk to you about the co-creator and co-host of After the Glory, Woodland Hills lawyer Gary Stern. When Gary's not talking to elite athletes, you can usually find him doing what he's been doing for almost 45 years, navigating the world of government. As a college student and young professional, Gary helped folks deal with federal and state agencies through his work as a caseworker with a local congressman and state senator. That work prepared Gary for a career as a consumer lawyer. Today, Gary still helps people in all walks of life, but his passion nowadays is his service as a mediator, mostly in cases like the ones he's been handling for over four decades, where people have been injured in accidents or in connection with their employment. You can learn more about Stern Law, the law offices of Gary N. Stern at his website, www.sternlaw.org. That's S-T-E-R-N. Or you can call him at 818-710-2717. That's 818-710-2717. Back on After the Glory, after hearing from Dale Torberg, a, a, an incredibly inspiring story from a, a really wonderful uh, individual, uh, and I'm so grateful for my friendship with Dale. Lucy, we've had a great four seasons. We're going to take a break for a few weeks uh, after uh, this episode and uh, uh, line ourselves up for uh, further conversations with elite athletes. Uh, how about some thoughts about the people and the, and the journeys that we've heard so far? Well, you know, first, I want to thank you, Gary, for really taking on this passion project of ours and making it into something that I don't think either of us really had thought it would become what it is today. And with so much more potential, also want to thank our team, Daryl and Mark and Mike, just for 
being troopers with us through this experience, you know, I feel so blessed to be able to have these conversations with such special people whom I respect and totally admire, but also being able to share these conversations with our listeners and the world as a whole, because it is so important to me that we allow our athletes the opportunity to shine outside of the identity as an athlete, because it's really what we are able to do when we come together as a community and respect people for their expertise, but also acknowledge that they can contribute in more ways than we give them credit for. So I'm really excited about our four seasons so far and really looking forward to many more conversations and maybe even doing some reunions. Wouldn't that be nice? It sure would. Lucy, I, I echo your thoughts. Um, these are amazing human beings. The What we learned over and over and over again are the skills the mental and physical uh, uh, elite um, skills that these individuals have that get them to the top of the mountain are also the skills that uh, in, in almost every case uh, sustain them through the rest of their lives. Um, until we meet again, this is Gary Stern and Lucy Sang on After the Glory. Lucy and I hope you enjoyed this edition of After the Glory. As we leave you until next time, we want to thank our team, our producer, Mark Allen, executive producer from PodClips, Mike Anderson, and our sound engineer and editor, the insane Daryl Wayne. We are also grateful for music by T. Dan Hofstede. And as we close out this episode of After the Glory, we honor our guest with our theme song, written and sung by my brother in baseball, T. Dan, the master of music from the islands, and the slack key guitar. Until next time, stay safe, healthy, and athletic. Living the dream on a shooting star. Hometown crowd cheering what you are. Living large and riding high. Razzling and dazzling across the sky. Back in the day, so young and strong. Play, you can do no wrong But when that ride is through What you gonna do? Hey, hey, what's your story? What you gonna do after the glory? Step back and take inventory Checking out new territory Not every day Oh,